Hello and welcome to Eden Camp Modern History Museum's first ever podcast. We're here in the meeting room in the officers space of the museum. It used to be the officers mess as well. So we are here with Jude, our heritage engagement officer, to talk about rationing in this episode. But throughout all the monthly episodes we'll be exploring history, mainly World War II, but some other conflicts as well. And we are going to explore and delve deeper into the myths, um, the legends and everything else World War II based. So welcome to Jude and thank you for joining me. I'm very excited with everything we have in here. Um, So tell me more about rationing. Well thank you for having me Harriet. It's nice to be here and how exciting it is for this to be our first episode. I know and you're very welcome being our first star expert. Well it's quite exciting really. (laughs) I can only hope that I live up to expectations. Oh I do too. Mm. So we're going to discuss a little bit about rationing, this food, clothes, everything involved, um, and you're basically just going to tell me everything I need to know about World mm-hmm. War II rationing. Lovely. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what rationing is and the purpose behind it? So the reason why rationing is implemented, whether it's in a time of war, time of peace, is so that everybody can get their fair share. Rather than, uh, say for example, you've got 100 tonnes of potatoes, if it's first come first serve basis that'll leave a lot of people starving whereas if you ration them all out everyone will get their fair share they'll all get the nutrition they need and ultimately you'll be fighting fit fabulous so um did it work well uh, in the second world war <laughs> um they had lots of preparation um so they trialed rationing in the first world war and it's from there that they were able to experiment with what worked and what didn't Okay, and the trials, did it change throughout the war? Did it edit? So what happened in the First World War was rationing was voluntary and optional, and it was just seen as a moral obligation, much like recycling is today. So you'd be encouraged to eat less bread, because that's less wheat that they have to import, because of course in the First and Second World War, a lot of shipping was sunk um, by the U-boats. So... After the First World War, they realised they didn't do a very good job of it. And it left a lot of people without any food, a lot of people without the food they needed. So by the Second World War, they wanted to make sure they did it properly. Okay, and when did the Second World War rationing actually start? So it actually started in January 1940. And what a lot of people seem to forget was it didn't end until 1954. Hmm. Mm. Long time. (laughs) And did it... Did it improve people? Were people happy about it? Did they enjoy, you know, like, better lifestyle? I want to say perhaps it united people under a common cause, because whether you were for the war, against the war, for against any politicians, anything like that, you all had one thing in common, and that was rationing. Uh, of course, there were those who um, liked to get goods from under the counter, bit of black market <laughs> action. Um, but, you know, most people did have to go buy it, and um, it was a shared experience, and... Uh, yeah it was cool Mm, nice (laughs) Um, and it wasn't just food no of course it wasn't so um initially it starts with food stuff such as meat sugar fats um but by the end of a war you've got uh well you've got food you've got fabric you've got clothing you've got materials such as um, petrol and so on as well then you've got all the other goods which aren't rationed but we're on a coupon system, so you get so many coupons a week and you can only spend that many coupons a week. So a bit like the clothing book? Similar, yes. Okay. Um, more for tinned goods and stuff like that. Uh, okay, mm. cool. Um, and the tinned goods were 
easy to get hold of or because they weren't Russian they're on a coupon were they easy to get hold of or not um I'd say it's more with the rationing it's monitoring their usage more than anything else so say even if it was something that could be easily found um it's more about monitoring how they're used where they're used and it's all like stock control if you think of it like that so some areas like the cities will need more places in the countryside will need less if there's say for example um a lot of people off on leave from the army in a particular area they'll know to send more there all that kind of stuff and then Mm. obviously because of geographic location the countryside would have less rationing because they have more land so that's where your dig for victory comes in that would come in too but you've also got the resources things like rabbits which of course you can't get in the city rabbits of course being something you can catch quite easily or you could even shoot a few pigeons (laughs) and um one of the few meats that wasn't rationed at all over the course of the war was rabbit just because it was so plentiful that they didn't need to ration it um so the dig for victory campaign initially did have its origins in the first world war as well when the government encouraged everyone to start getting allotments as they weren't building any houses during the first world war because they didn't have any materials there was all this scrap land so it all got turned over for vegetables and they did realize that that was quite an effective scheme so by the second world war it rolled out nationwide Fabulous. And what kind of things would you expect to find in your typical garden? Oh, well... Other than rabbits, of course. (laughs) Well, would you believe one of the things that was always very popular was cress? Because it's full of good vitamins and it's good for the skin. Interesting. Mm. And in a time when you're short of cosmetics, Mm. um, it's quite helpful to have good skin. Yes, yes, of course. And anything else? I think we've got some potatoes on the table. We have, yes. Potatoes being a good earthy food. Mm -hmm. And particularly as you can use it as a base for lots of different cooking. Um, Say, for example, you can use it in cakes. You can use it as a flour. Um, Yes, everything back then was quite stodgy. uh, But it certainly filled you up. So there were a lot of substitutes then for stuff that we would normally have today. Oh, yes. um, particularly Bizarrely enough, um, even things like sugar, which obviously would have been difficult to get, Mm -hmm. they'd suggest using things like golden syrup because, of course, it travels better because it's in a jar or a tin. Mm -hmm. Um, It can't spoil very easily. Um, And you just pop it in, say, for example, if you're making a cake, you can drop it in there. Um, And yes, even paraffin was suggested at one point, which, you know, the cake might taste quite nice but it's repercussions <laughs> most certainly not so in place of sugar paraffin yes. yeah mm-hmm. would wow. you like to give it a try one day no i would not no. thank you <laughs> <laughs> no and then um so we're looking at a little bit of um more towards clothing and things so in terms of mm. rationing for that what what did they get so for a lady you'd get enough coupons to last you a whole outfit for one year so you'd be able to buy everything from your underwear a coat maybe some shoes included in those vouchers um but it wouldn't stretch very far so a lot of people had to make do and mend mm-hmm. people like the women's voluntary service run clothes drives so a bit like a car boot sale or a flea market where you bring one item of clothing you can take one item of clothing mm-hmm. so then that stops the demand for new clothes and it also you know gives you a fresh wardrobe that's Mm. quite exciting so no fast fashion then at all uh not particularly not during (laughs) all time so how come rationing went on for so long after the war 
Well, it's funny you mention that because, of course, a lot of people have this conception that because we've won the war, and they did at the time as well, thinking, right, that's it, back to business as normal. But, however, of course, um, a great deal of our country was all bombed and um, so many countries abroad in Europe were as well. Come V Day, America stops giving us food and money, so we have to keep providing for ourselves and for other countries in Europe. So that's why rationing and the Women's Land Army and all that, it carried on right until the 1950s, which is something you might not have known. No, I did no? not know that. In 54. So it did span two monarchs and... It did, yes, but I have to say, if you're saying you're 54, you do look good on it. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then the Land Army, so were they involved in a lot of this then? Uh, yes, so both in the First and Second World War, um, the Land Army was a civilian voluntary organisation, um, which we've all seen, you know, we've watched the things like Lang Girls and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's there's nothing really romantic about war, um, let alone being a Lang Girl, mucking out the pigs, milking the cows, you know, all that oh, kind of stuff. Know. It's so. nice to be close to nature, isn't it? So, in terms of rationing in World War Two, what kind of average weekly allowance would you get? So you'd get different ones depending who you were. So there was a standard one for adults, standard one for children, but then there's extra ones, say, for example, if you're an expecting mother, if you work on the railways, you'd get a slightly different one because you're doing a lot of hard labour, okay. all that kind of stuff. But for there's this... It's a myth, and no-one's proved it or disproved it, but when Winston Churchill first saw it all laid out, they said, here, our Prime Minister, here's the ration. And he said it looked like a fine meal, but, of course, it was supposed to last for a week. Hmm. So therein lies the difficulty. So with giving everyone an equal share doesn't always mean it's going to be a vast quantity. So, and of course, over over the war, it does change its quantities. You know, if they've got a bigger supply of one thing, they can give you more. If they're running out of it, they'll have to give you less. Mm-hmm. So things like bacon and ham, mm-hmm. you'd get four ounces of, which is about... 200, 250 grams approximately off the top of my head. Okay. Um, all other meats, things like corned beef, were quite popular back then. Um, it was by its price. So if it was worth a pound, you'd get a pound's worth. Um, but things like corned beef were really handy because you could just mix it in with anything. Mm. Uh, quite versatile. And that things. was sort of our version of Spam, really, wasn't it? Spam was quite... Yes, and it wouldn't have to come all the way from America. Yeah. Because um, corning it is uh, it's to do with salt. So it's basically just salted, mm. processed meat, much like Spam. Um, milk, you'd get three pints a week. Of course, mm-hmm. most likely delivered by milkman. You'd have uh, cooking fats, then you'd have things like margarine and then butter. You would get more margarine than you would butter because um, margarine's more versatile. You can use it in everything. You can mm-hmm. use it as a cooking fat as well. So if you're running low on your cooking fats, you can use some margarine. Saying that, I'm not particularly keen on frying eggs and margarine. Um, <laughs> tea is always a contentious issue because you get all those people saying we didn't ever run the war without our cups of tea. So everyone would have got two ounces. Oh, that's a good debate to have. Yes. Um, well, that's the thing. What if you drink coffee? Because you can't really get coffee from a board because it would get sunk and it's a lot of money to do that. Mm-hmm. So they'd make it out of chicory. Um, would you believe? Interesting. Yes. Is that something you've tried as well? I have. Really? <laughs> At this point, what haven't I tried, I think, is what we need to ask ourselves. And did it taste of coffee? It, you can still buy it, and it's called Camp Coffee, it's one of the brands. Okay. And it's like a really thick coffee syrup. It makes better icing for a cake than it would do a drink, in my opinion. Interesting. Mm. But yes, and 
of course, your rations are supplemented by things like um, your Dig for Victory garden, any vegetables. Vegetables were never rationed. Um, and anything's like safe from local farms, you might get a few extra eggs. If you keep your own chickens or rabbits, that was encouraged too. Mm. Um, and of course, we had British restaurants, which are basically cheap meals, equivalent now of maybe like £1.52, mm-hmm. um, where you just get food off the ration and it was all provided by the government. And then um, we're doing a bit of myth busting today. So mm-hmm. please, can you tell me what Gravy Legs, the title of this episode, means? What is it? Well, it's my street nickname. Um, I'm known by <laughs> everyone course. as Gravy Legs um, for no apparent reason. But of course, there is this conception that during the war, all ladies covered their legs with gravy browning because they couldn't get stockings. So stockings being like tights are today, however, mm-hmm. they're separate. And at the time, you weren't possible to make them without having a seam at the back. So there's this conception where ladies would darken their legs much as people would do nowadays with tan or something like that mm-hmm. um and then use an eyebrow pencil to draw that line that seam right up the back of your legs however uh modern <laughs> thinking on this is it's more of something you'd read in a magazine like you might read in cosmopolitan or something now like like here's something hats. of the week yeah mm-hmm. um so it might well have been done by some people occasionally but if you think rationing went for, what, 14 years? Well, that's a long time to be covered in gravy, yes. um, even on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> so, yes, what a lot of ladies would do, they'd just go bare-legged or they'd wear socks. Socks tended to be quite popular because, of course, you can't get any razors because all the metal's being used for aeroplanes. Mm. So some, there's reports of some ladies trying to use pommel stones and just gashing for all their legs. Yes. No, thank mm. you. So there wasn't any sort of alternative that they probably would have used instead of gravy. They're just not bothering in the first place. I do think potentially few people would have done it. Um, right. But however, I think it's, I wouldn't say blown out of proportion. Not everybody mm. did it all of the time, but a few ladies would have tried it. Because, oh. well, we're all in this uh, thing for beauty, aren't we? Yes, you've got to try this. Pain things. is beauty. If anybody mm. doesn't know any family members who did try it, please get in touch because we want to know how it went. Hmm. Cool, I like that. Or maybe if you get bored one Sunday afternoon after you've had your roast. Yeah. Spare gravy. Yeah. Like, get, particularly the gravy where you've got little mushrooms or bits of onion in it. Just start <laughs> lathering your legs up at the table. <laughs> I'm sure everyone will have plenty to say about Only it. Only if you do it with me. Well, if you're waffling. <laughs> okay. So, comparison between World War One and World War Two. going back to that, I'm presuming they didn't do gravy legs in World War One. so what were the differences? So, there were a few differences um, in... The First World War, as it being this time of experiment, both you know on the battlefield, also on the home front, with a lot of new challenges and a lot of new things to face, um, a lot of families started using what I'd describe as um, poverty recipes, like the kind of things you get in a workhouse, very old oh. twist, Charles Dickens, very... And it is very much a case of meat and two veg. It's just bleak, starchy things, uh, cereals such as oats. It's just very stodgy, like much as it is in the Second World War. But by the Second World War, they had the Ministry of Food who were running, like, these kitchens where you'd write in your recipes, they'd try it out, and they had this programme where, um, on the radio, on the wireless set every week, they'd have, uh, basically, a cooking demonstration over the radio. And they'd also produce what they called um, 
food flashes, which were a series of short films shown at the cinema, because, of course, nobody had a television, mm. to go down to the cinema regularly. And you know how you should get adverts nowadays at the cinema? They'd pop it in at that kind of time. And it would show you how to cook certain things. There's one on the Pathé archives, where it's using baked potatoes, but you're putting cod's row in it, which is part of the reproductive system of a fish. Delicious. Um, and I can say is a recipe I've tried. And... <laughs> Um, I wouldn't say it tastes like tuna, but it smells much, much, much more worse. Um, But yes, so they've got all this time for experimentation. They're using um, the people, they're sensing what the people want and they're working off that, not just a matter of what's practical. Mm. And um, with this whole fitness scheme as well, is on the radio, along with these food talks, like with what nutrition you should be eating, intentional or not, you know, whether they're sneaking it in or they're telling you as such, mm. they'd also give them exercises. So much as you might okay. do, you know, workouts by Fonda or uh, Joe Wicks well, or whoever. Nice <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> they did the same thing over the radio, where mm. you'd be encouraged to take things like air baths, particularly lived in the city, which was just sticking your head out the window. Cool. Of course, point being, it's still polluted outside, but... You know, there's still very much of a thought that fresh air does you a lot of good, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I suppose it does. Um, but, you know, it's the whole kind of thing where you'd be lying on your back on the bed with your legs up in the air, pretending you're on, a, on a bicycle, which, of course, <laughs> not many people do nowadays. Um, no. No. Not regularly. Uh, no. Um, but, yes, it's all that kind of thing, which is, has its origins there, and then it just builds upon it after that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, mm. thank you very much, Jude. That was really, really helpful. I think we've had a brilliant insight into rationing in World War Two and World War One, which is fantastic. Um, and thank you for being here on our very first podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Harriet. Join us next time when Summer, our archivist, will be talking about the Scarborough bombardment during World War One. She's going to talk about all the local history, including the Bennett family, who had a devastating experience throughout 1914. You can hear our podcast on all available platforms that you would normally listen to your podcast on. You can also view the uh, filming of the podcast on YouTube so you get to see everything that we've got in the meeting room with us, which is including the potatoes and dried eggs. And you can also see our lovely faces whilst we chat. (laughs) Thank you very much. We'll see you soon.